From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, I'm Jenna Spinelli. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. And I'm Chris Beam, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about local news, and our guest is Jennifer Lawless, the Commonwealth Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia and author of a forthcoming book called News Hole, which looks at some of the decline in local news over the years and some of the ways that folks are trying to bring it back and how to make that match our current environment. And I think what's most salient for us, why local news is important to our democracy. Jefferson says, if I had to choose between government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I would choose the latter. He thought that keeping, that having an institution that was devoted to keeping the populace informed and that has as its role keeping tabs on government power uh, to make decisions in people's lives was just absolutely essential, right? And then Tocqueville comes, he's this French aristocrat, right, who sees the handwriting on the wall and wants to see how democracy works in America. And so he looks at all these various institutions and he looks at journalism and he says, folks, there's a lot of really terrible journalism out there, right? Just a lot of junk, screeds that don't have any connection to the truth. But he says, you know, we just have to swallow this because the press must be independent. And if it's going to perform its role, its function of being a check on the power of the government, it has to be free has to be completely free. Between now and when de Tocqueville was talking and that a lot has changed around kind of principles of objectivity and professionalism of journalism. But one thing I think that hasn't changed is how key local news is. It was key then and it's key now. And so it becomes really important to take in consideration what we lose when we lose local news outlets. We lose transparency of local government decision-making processes. We lose a watchdog function where we can see is there corruption? Are there unnecessary, unscrupulous links between, say, business and political elites? Are there links between law enforcement and crime organizations or hate groups? And well-trained journalists know what to look for. They know what's normal. They know what's not. They know what kinds of information could and should be given to the public. And they know what kind of questions to ask that help us to know how we should proceed in, say, the next election or even at the next city council meeting to make a demand around a certain issue. Since like the 90s, since Craigslist and since everything went online, since the price of ink and print went up, all these things have just combined to make it very, very difficult to sustain local journalism. And this is not merely local, it's also state. Most major newspapers in states, whether it be the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel or the Detroit Free Press, they had journalists assigned to the state house, and that was their job. And if you want to talk about corruption, <laughs> that's where you're going to find it. And so now you have a lot of these newspapers having to close their state bureaus. And so, yeah, there's nobody watching the hen house. 
just to pinpoint exactly what Chris is talking about, there are about 2,100 newspapers that have folded across the country since 2004, which is a 25% decline. Penelope Abernathy, who's at UNC's School of Journalism, finds that 200 counties do not have a local newspaper, and about half of U.S. counties, about 1,500, only have one paper, and in many cases, it's a weekly newspaper. So more and more people are living in what she calls news deserts communities with limited access to credible and comprehensive news and information. And here I think the emphasis is on credible and comprehensive, because again, you know, we're seeing an evolution in news, but I guess we can talk about whether that new rise is credible and comprehensive. Yeah. So there are two things going on here, right? I mean, on the one hand, you have this decline of the resources of the fourth estate, right? Of the ability of journalism to keep an eye on government and what's going on. But nothing has changed in terms of the power of the government, right? It's simply that they're not, there's, no, there's not as much oversight. And so there's a vacuum there. And what happens whenever there's a vacuum? Something else comes in. And in this case, it's just inevitable that economic power is going to exploit this vacuum and try to get more done. This isn't like some kind of evil cabal. It's just what happens whenever there's a vacuum of power, something is going to fill that in. And so now you have this kind of disconnect between the people who ostensibly have the power to influence these decisions and information about which to make their decisions. And when that doesn't happen, the people that have the power make them by themselves. And that is just not a good recipe for democracy. I think that's a good place to uh, transition to the interview. So let's get to it. Here is my interview with Jennifer Lawless. Jennifer Lawless, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk with you about your work in local news and how it relates to civic engagement and participation in democracy at the local level. And, you know, I think for those of us who work in these areas in in democracy or in the media, it seems like a, a connection that's always been there, but I think it might be helpful as a way into this conversation to talk about some of that history. How far back can we trace this connection between local news and civic engagement and democratic participation? Well, right from the start, the founders valued the importance of an independent press And political historians have traced back links between the media and newspapers in particular and civic engagement for literally hundreds of years. So from the moment the nation was founded, there was this general sense that an informed citizenry would be more participatory and that the way that people would get that information would be through their local news, because it's really what's going on in your communities that is particularly important. While the federal government plays an important role in American society, of course, so much happens at the local level that only with local independent reporting do people really have the facts and the wherewithal to engage and be fully um, informed. 
And I, I know your work covers the rise and more recently the fall of local news due to changing ways that we consume media, changes to the business model of local newspapers in particular. Can you give us a sense of what that timeline has looked like, particularly over the past 20 to 25 years? Sure. I mean, I would step back even further to put it into context and just remind people that this might sound crazy, but in the 1940s and 1950s, there were actually more newspaper subscriptions than there were households. Many newspapers had both a morning and an evening edition, and many households subscribed to both. So we were at a point in the 40s, 50s, and even 60s where it was commonplace for people to regularly rely on the newspaper multiple times a day. That started to slow down in the 60s, although population shifts and increases continued to allow local newspapers to make some money. But if you look at the last 25 or 30 years, we've basically seen a great gutting of the American newspaper industry. Not only have there been catastrophic losses when it comes to political reporting more broadly, but the size of the paper in general has gotten a lot smaller. The advertising that used to keep these papers afloat is no longer generating the kind of revenue that it used to. There aren't as many eyeballs on these pages because people can now get the information that they need with the click of a button or so they think when they go online. And so what we've seen over the course of the last couple of decades is a situation whereby political junkies, at least when it comes to national news, can indulge their interests like never before. There are a zillion websites that they can visit regularly. And people who aren't at all interested in news don't have to encounter it ever. They may have once read the newspaper as a way to get to the sports scores or the recipes or the TV section, but now there's an app for that. So we've basically gotten to the point where the local newspaper isn't providing any kind of auxiliary benefit to people who are looking for other information. And as a result, it's just been very, very difficult for the industry to stay afloat. And is there a parallel track that we can see as far as civic engagement or democratic participation? Does that track with the decline of local news and how easy it is for people to access that information? It does. And that's one of the big normative concerns that Danny Hayes, who co-authored the book, and I have, which is basically that in the 1960s and the 1970s, you could get large majorities of Americans to be able to identify by name the mayor of their town or what the city council has been doing in recent times, or even, frankly, the name of the school superintendent. Now, fast forward to the late 2000s, to 2010, 2012, and certainly as late as 2019, and it's basically a handful of people that can answer those kinds of questions. Moreover, it's not just that knowledge has increased, but participation has gone down as well. We tend to talk about participation at the national level, but what we tend to forget, there are 500,000 elected offices in this country, and the overwhelming majority of them are actually at the local level. Yet participation in these elections is often in the single digits. And so there are half a million people who are representing Americans on issues that matter very close to home, and basically a handful of people coming out to cast ballots in those elections or to voice concerns because it's just so difficult to get information about what's going on. 
So you mentioned some of the other reasons that people had to go to newspapers. And one of those things certainly I think is classified ads, which are not a thing anymore. And Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, has in the over the past decade or so given a lot of money to help fund new types of local news organizations, nonprofit sites, and things like that. And I think efforts like this are, are what you describe as supply-side solutions to this problem. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like? Sure. There's this general consensus that this catastrophic loss of reporting is not a good thing and that it's terrible for people's political knowledge, their participation, as well as just sort of serving as a way to hold a community together. And so there have been lots of efforts to try and shore up the resources that are required to produce the news at the local level. And we call these supply side efforts because they're really geared toward ensuring that the capacity to produce the news is there and that the supply of local political news exists. And so some of these efforts involve basically deep pocket billionaires subsidizing the news. We see this with Jeff Bezos and The Washington Post. Others involve partnering between newspapers and nonprofit organizations. Report for America is a perfect example, similar to the way that Teach for America would put teachers in communities that really were having struggling school systems and they needed additional teachers and resources. Report for America will send reporters to local newspapers so that those papers can engage in the kind of investigative reporting that their reporters no longer have time to do. And a third way that we see these supply-side efforts work is with the startup of these hyper-local news websites. And a lot of effort has been devoted in lots of communities across the country toward providing alternative outlets for local news. Unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of these outlets don't actually provide that much coverage of politics and more than half of them are concentrated in only a handful of states. So although there are a few pockets of the country where some of these hyperlocal news websites might be an alternative way for political junkies to get the kind of information they need about what's happening in their communities, the overwhelming majority of citizens across the country actually don't have access to those kinds of outlets. So that's not to say that they're not great and that they're not serving a role, but they're just not nearly as prolific as they would need to be to step in and fill this void. I mean, if you think about the print paper, as you suggest, you might go in or you might have gone in at one point to check the sports scores or the weather or the TV listings or the um, obituaries I know are still a driver for people to go to local newspaper sites. But in today's time, you're finding these articles on Facebook or you're referring them in from somewhere else, some other kind of third party site. So, I mean, what role does that dynamic play in terms of how you think about, on the other side of the equation, that demand for local news? If it's not something that people will just happen upon, how do you kind of create that demand or get people to that political content that they might not see otherwise? That becomes the big challenge. And the supply side efforts suggest that making it available means that people will just sort of navigate or gravitate toward it. And we argue that there are predispositions that people have that will, in fact, lead them toward local news, but that those attitudes need to be activated. And so what we did was we conducted national surveys with people and we asked them to tell us whether a series of words and phrases described local politics and national politics. We asked if it was boring or entertaining. We also asked if it was interesting, relevant, important, 
And we asked them to what extent they thought that a whole series of activities, including following the local news, was a part of being a good citizen. And what we found is that there are these key ingredients that people have that should drive them to local news. And so the first finding is that it's true. People find local news more boring and less entertaining than they do national news. And that's not just a Donald Trump phenomenon. This tracks back well into the Obama administration. What's going on at your city council meeting just isn't as interesting as the latest crisis in Congress or the latest fight among politicians at the White House. And so that's a negative. What local news has going for it is that citizens view local politics as just as relevant, important, and vital for following what's happening in their communities as they do national politics. So there is this instrumental motivation there that exists. They believe that it's important to be informed about local news. The other thing that it has going for it is that people tend to think that following local news is an important part of being a good citizen. It's up there with following national news and paying taxes and serving on a jury. All of these things that make us good citizens, all of these things around which there are norms, Local news falls into that same category, about eight out of 10 Americans believes that. So our argument is that for the people who don't think that local politics is important, we should inform them about everything that local politics is doing, because sometimes merely providing that information can lead people to change their behavior. And for those who do recognize that it's important, but who are not currently consuming it, we argue that we need to prime them to think about the local community and the importance of local news when they're making their decisions about what news to consume. And so these might sound like pretty obvious steps, but the reality is that unless we prime people to think about the importance of being an informed citizen and the importance of following what's going on in their communities, they're just not doing it. We know that because these instrumental motivations and these attitudes that are very positive and should correlate with local news consumption don't correlate nearly as strongly as we would expect. Right. So who does that priming and that informing to grease the wheel, so to speak, to get people motivated to consuming and seeking out local news? It could be a mix of things. I mean, some of it. So we tested this approach in a series of exit polls. We conducted an exit poll in Arlington, Virginia on Election Day 2018 and in Charlottesville, Virginia on Election Day 2019. Virginia has off-year elections. And what we found was at the bottom of a poll that just asked voters as they were coming out of the polling place who they voted for and a standard set of demographic questions, at the bottom of that, we also asked them if they would be willing to sign up for a local news digest that would appear in their email on a daily basis. And the people that said that they would be interested in doing that were people who were more inclined to, in addition to have that question asked at the bottom of the survey, also saw a line that primed them to think about the importance of local news. And so by doing this, just in one simple sentence at the bottom of a questionnaire, we were able to drive up interest by a substantial percentage. In Charlottesville alone, the percentage of people who gave us their email addresses when they were reminded about the importance of local news was almost 50% greater than those who gave us their email addresses when they received no prompt. So in some ways, it's literally just a matter of a public relations campaign, perhaps even on the part of these newspapers themselves, to remind voters and to remind citizens more broadly how important the local community is. There's no question that nonprofit organizations could play a role and academics could too. 
Yeah, right. So coming back to the supply side, it's sort of like a chicken and the egg in some sense. If there is no local news outlet or the local news outlet doesn't have the staff to be able to do these kinds of campaigns, who moves first? Is it the public speaking up and saying, yes, we want this? Yes, we commit to supporting it? Or is it the news organizations or the people who back them moving first to say, okay, we understand this is what you want. This is where you can get it. Or this is why you should care. And I I think maybe that might look different depending on what type of community you're in or where you are, what the landscape looks like currently. Right. I think that it is in some ways a chicken and egg problem. And that's the reason that these supply and these demand side initiatives have to work in tandem. And I don't think that we're talking about citizens rising up and demanding this. When we're talking about an audience demand problem, I think what we're basically talking about is ensuring that when that supply exists, there will be consumers ready to consume it. So when we talk about ensuring that the demand exists for information about City Hall or the town council or the county commissioner's office, what we're really talking about is creating incentives for the newspapers and the industry more generally to devote resources toward these reporters, to cover these kinds of political meetings, to cover these kinds of political events, because there is a thirst out there or at least a willingness to consume that information. And so nonprofit organizations that can work to publicize the importance of local news, I think would go a long way in encouraging people to start reading it. And then that could be a virtuous cycle. I don't envision protests on the streets in front of local newspapers demanding that there be more supply because all of a sudden people are now aware of the fact that it's a key component of being a good citizen. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great, though, if people did that? I don't know. It would. (laughs) So do you see local governments themselves playing a role in this equation at all? I mean, in my days as a journalist, one of the gripes I heard fairly often from people in local government was that we get these cub reporters in here who don't know what they're doing and they write bad articles and not even bad from like a, a PR perspective, just wrong. And it strikes me anyway that it's in local government's interest to have reporters who have some institutional knowledge or who have the ability to gain that institutional knowledge and provide good reporting, good coverage of that community? Well, you'd think so, except it's important to keep in mind also that the press as a watchdog can often be the thorn in government side because the press provides the information that allows voters to hold their elected officials and their local government leaders accountable. And sometimes there's slippage between the ideal of accountability and what local governments actually want. And so I don't think it's as straightforward a link between matched incentives on the part of the newspapers to have high quality reporters and on the part of the government to make sure that there's consistent high quality reporting. I also think it's important to keep in mind, too, that the local press has traditionally been and still to some extent remains far more trustworthy than the national press. And in part, that's because 
it's not seen as partisan and Republicans and Democrats are more likely to view it favorably. And so to the extent that there are explicit politics linked to saving the newspaper industry, I worry that there would then be partisan implications Mm -hmm. and the same kinds of attitudes we see about partisan division when it comes to the national press could trickle down. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So you were talking before about the experiments you conducted in Northern Virginia and in Charlottesville. Are there examples of places that have kind of figured out this supply-demand puzzle or who have put some of these tactics that you did as part of your research actually into practice? So in writing the book, which we're almost finished with, in writing the book, we basically tried to collect as much data as we possibly could about the volume and the content of local news reporting, about citizen behavior at the local level, about supply side efforts to up the total volume of coverage. But what we also did was we spoke to several dozen journalists and editors at these local newspapers. And we asked them their impressions of the local news crisis. We also asked them what they thought would work to solve the problems. And many of them were not on the record, but I can generally provide you with some basic facts that they provided, which is that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution in every town and in every community. But what did seem to be common across all of these interviews was the idea that when the reporters have a real foothold in the community and when they're able to talk to people, when they're at the coffee shops, when they're out and about, when people feel like they have a relationship with the newspaper, that can ultimately serve as a way to put the brakes on the bleeding. And so what we were hearing from many of these reporters was that these newspapers themselves are now holding community events. They're holding forums whereby people can talk about politics. They're the ones that are sponsoring debates. They're the ones that are generating attention regarding particular issues in community events. And they're also basically holding the equivalent of office hours with concerned citizens so that they can be out there and sort of shore up their trust in the community and place themselves and position themselves as a vital resource to community members. So that was one strategy that seemed to be somewhat successful. The second thing that we heard pretty regularly was that there was not much confidence in paywalls, largely because young people in particular want the news for free and they can get a lot of national news for free. So they don't necessarily think of purchasing local news as something that's on their to-do list. And we heard a lot of discussion about creative solutions to try and incentivize that purchase. And so in some cases, it's allowing people to buy one article at a time. In others, it's a really, really discounted rate for that first year, which sort of brings you in and makes you rely on the local news so that you would be willing to pay for it moving forward. On those kinds of proposals and suggestions, there seemed to be far less optimism because none of these outlets had yet figured out a way to change the revenue model such that it was working for the local newspaper industry. Speaking of that community engagement piece, I've had conversations with people that make the argument that, well, our communities are virtual now. And these conversations happened pre-COVID. I think you could argue that that's maybe even more true now in our Zoom world where we interact with each other far less face-to-face and people are working remotely. So you don't even have to live in the same place where you work. 
How do you think that some of these dynamics play into this local news puzzle? And it seems like it just adds one more burden, one more challenge on on top of everything that these outlets are already trying to do. You're right. And that's why the story of the book, except for this last chapter, really is that the sky is falling. We try to end not on a gloom and doom message by presenting the results of these exit polls to demonstrate that there is the potential for change. But certainly it's tricky. I would say that one piece of hope that I have is what the Boston Globe has actually been doing in Providence. So the Providence Journal has long been the legacy newspaper in Rhode Island, and it's just gone through a series of cuts and it's basically been gutted. There's virtually no content left. And what the Boston Globe did was they created a Rhode Island section that's online only. They hired a bunch of reporters who had at one point been the star reporters at the Providence Journal. And my understanding is that their Rhode Island coverage now is where people go online to find out what's going on in Providence and in and around the rest of the state. And so That gives me some degree of hope because that's a model where a newspaper that is generating most of its revenue from the Boston area is able to leverage its location and hire people who are excellent, well-groomed reporters to cover a different community and to cover it in a way where the information can be provided online so it can be more affordable to consumers and it doesn't compromise the bottom line of the Boston Globe. So, you know, I think that there are some creative options and opportunities out there for things like that to happen, where you really do have a local section of a paper that might not be based in that community itself. Right, right. So we've been talking this whole time about newspapers, and I I know that is the focus of your book. But just as we wrap up here, have you thought at all or, or considered as part of this project how radio stations, whether they're public radio or for profit or even local TV, might fit into this picture? We have. So I think it's important to note right off the bat that I'm a big supporter of any venue that can actually provide information about the community and political news in particular to citizens. So I don't think that this is about just shoring up newspapers. I don't think it's about making sure that newspapers remain the most important source of information for people at the local level. I just think that they're a key component of ensuring that there's an information environment out there that does deliver to citizens the information that they need. And we examine television. Local television has not taken the hit the same way that local newspapers have. And so some might argue that, well, that's a great opportunity. And maybe the crisis isn't as bad as we're suggesting, because if local TV remains alive and well, perhaps they're picking up additional coverage and they're offering all of the information that the newspapers are no longer able to offer. And so we looked at several dozen media markets and TV stations across the country. And what we found is that when we talk about local political coverage, it's held steady at these stations over the course of the last couple of decades. So it's true that these papers are taking a hit in a way that local TV is not, except that local TV is not offering any additional coverage. So local coverage on television has held steady 
and it's declined at the newspaper level, which means that there's a net decrease. The other thing that I would note about TV is that it's always been a little bit different than newspapers because local television news tends to focus on crime, tends to focus on traffic, on weather, on disasters, on scandal. There's just not nearly as much political coverage as what you would see in the newspaper. But again, anything that we can do to create incentives for any local news outlet to up its political coverage would go a long way to helping ensure that we don't see further declines when it comes to democratic participation and knowledge. Although it might seem quaint and although a lot of people don't get the excitement of running down the steps in the morning, opening the door, seeing their newspaper and reading it over coffee, the information that those local newspapers used to be able to provide really did generate a heightened sense of community. And we're not seeing that anymore, largely because the papers can't afford to do it. So to the extent that people care about this sense of community, it would be great if they would at least consider newspapers a way to show it. Great. Well, we will leave it there. Jen Lawless, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I always learn when Jen Lawless speaks, and it was a really great interview to have Jenna as a journalist herself, right, to to bring in the kind of on-the-ground complexity. So I was really happy to have that interview. So one, thanks, Jenna. One of the things that Jen pointed out that I wanted to kind of grapple with you, Chris, and Jenna, is that she notes that local newspapers are trusted and usually aren't partisan, and they can build community and help provide information to a wider audience when they're able to. But we see that that financial model of news outlets, newspapers in particular, aren't, I mean, it's basically collapsing. And so then the question is, well, what's the next move? And I wonder if it's worth thinking about if some old things should become new again. So For example, newspapers used to be clearly partisan. And is that a model that we could go back to? It also used to be the case that the financial backing of newspapers were by subscription only, not advertisements. And so are there elements that we've seen in history that are worth thinking about whether they should be brought into the future to make local news more viable so it can do the work that we believe that it does. I think that's right. I think that people my age, and I don't know how much younger, think about this post-war era as being somehow that extended well back to the mists of history. And it's just not true. There was this time after World War II until like say sometime in the 80s where there was a business model that was built on nonpartisanship, objectivity. And that is the unusual period in American history. And so it is not unreasonable to think that maybe the most viable alternative pathway for reestablishing local journalism is to accept once again, this idea of a partisan point of view. However, (laughs) the problem is that that only works from a civic point of view if there's some journalistic integrity going along with this partisan identity, right? If there isn't, and let's face it, there's plenty of models out there right now in the broad media landscape 
that do not affirm what you and I would agree is a kind of standard of journalistic integrity, right? That they're not committed to the truth, that they see their job as just riling up their tribe. And if that is the only way we can sustain local journalism, then I think a lot of these civic community building objectives are just not gonna happen. They're not in the cards. And so how do you do both of those things? Yeah, I think that that's really important because we know that journalism and the media, generally speaking, are not necessarily objective, right? I mean, who is right. really? And the thing is, is that bias is not the same as being inaccurate or untruthful. People in the media frame things all of the time. The word use, the ordering of what information you provide first, the media makes some issues more salient than others. But I think what you've hit on is really this combination of journalistic integrity if there's also going to be some partisan bent. I think that is really what is required of all of us as democratic citizens, right? We all have bias. We all have a partisan point of view. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to fight. That's what a democracy is. But if you cannot combine that with A, an acknowledgement that you're biased, and B, some kind of underlying commitment to the truth, democracy becomes much harder to sustain. So one thing I think that also comes up in what Jen Lawless is talking about is there's the profit model. And on the other hand, there is the necessity to restore a mechanism to build community and bring information. And so I don't know, to what extent do you think that these are at odds or that the incentives line up pretty well? I think that's the question, right? And the one thing I would insist on is that they're not identical. And they never really have been. Particularly in the current cultural climate, people just identify in partisan terms. And so I do think it's difficult to get there. However, there are other ways besides journalism doesn't have to be a for-profit enterprise, right? PBS and NPR exist and do fine journalism and BBC, right? These are public enterprises. And so it's entirely reasonable for philanthropy to step up here. Just like the ballet doesn't make any money or doesn't make enough to sustain itself. But access to high quality information is a policy issue in my perspective. Jenna asked Jen if policymakers should have a greater hand in ensuring that local news outlets are better funded. And Jen Lawless kind of said, well, the incentive structure for elected officials might kind of run against the watchdog function of the media. And I'm not sure that I totally buy that argument insofar as it is in the interest of political elites for the public to be well-informed in a democracy. And I think that Americans, generally speaking, get very weird 
about the role of government in certain aspects of our lives, but there are models in other places and other countries. You name the BBC. The BBC, in my understanding, is not funded by philanthropists. Right. It's funded by a tax and that it produces independent news stuffs. (laughs) And it's really high quality, right? So I think that, again, in this thinking outside of the box and thinking historically and what this means for our future, that I think that it becomes a policy problem if an increasing number of Americans don't have access to the information that would make them excellent citizens. I couldn't agree more, but I don't think it's a viable option in this partisan climate. And the perennial, almost inevitable argument in Congress on continuing funding of NPR and PBS just bespeaks that. You think about the journalists who've been laid off. There are a lot of smart people in this world, and I think that a number of them do see themselves as entrepreneurs who are well aware of the news deserts and news holes that are arising and that they are aware that people are in need of and want high quality local news sources. And so people are also recognizing in this COVID moment where they are closer to home, where they are less likely to be traveling Sometimes even you and I probably would have traveled once or twice a month in the time since COVID started that we're not, and that people are looking around to say, hey, we should have more information about what's going on. And so perhaps all is not lost. And Jennifer's argument is that when people are made aware of the loss of local news, they do kind of shift their thinking about, hey, we should have that. And I do want to see that. And so that's a means to be optimistic, maybe cautiously optimistic, but optimistic for sure. I think that's well said. And it's a good point to end on. People are incredibly creative. And when they see this need, they're going to try to find ways to fill it. And most of them probably won't work, but some of them will. And some of them will create new models for people to go forward. And so all is not lost. And kudos to all those people who are doing this work right now. Because you're right. They're very smart. They're passionate people. The word vocation came into my head. These people see themselves as this is their mission in life. And God bless them. All right. And so in the show notes, uh, we're going to put links to help people find these kind of innovative new ways of getting local news in their area. And so they can see for themselves some of these new interesting models. So anyway, you're right. Jen Lawless is great. We had her come to D.C. early on in the McCourtney Institute's life. And so we think very highly of her. And this interview was just another example. And thanks to Jennifer for a really great interview. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.